Father, I want to thank you for these men and thank you for the, the breakfast that uh, you have provided for us. And we thank you for Gary Odie once again for his, uh, his labor of love for this, this group of men uh, to provide uh, good food and good coffee. And we thank you for uh, the gift uh, that, that he is to our church and he is to this group of men. We also want to thank you for the truth that you provided for us in your word uh, and how you feed us every single day as we uh, feed and feast on your word. And as it goes deep within us and nourishes our souls and teaches us how to live uh, in this world. We want to live for your glory, Father. We want to live uh, for your pleasure and for the, the, the joy and rejoicing of the Holy Spirit uh, as he is effective in our lives. We pray for the Lordship of Christ to, uh, to lead us, guide us, direct us, and command us. Uh, and we, we pray that you would use what we learned today uh, to help us to discern issues of sin and righteousness in our lives and to teach those things to our families as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we have uh, introduced in the past uh, number of sessions the concepts of covenant federalism. We talked about the role of uh, two unique trees in the Garden of Eden, and now I think we're ready to delve into the subject of homardiology. Homardiology is the doctrine of sin. And so of all the things we talk about in systematic theology, I think homardiology, the doctrine of sin, is the one we're most familiar with. Would you, wouldn't you say? <laughs> you, you would think we'd be experts on this issue of uh, understanding sin um, because we practice it so much. Um, but the doc doctrine of sin, homardolos, is the word for sin, and obviously logos is the study of, so the study of sin, the doctrine of sin. We, um, you would think that we're very familiar with these concepts of sin and uh, righteousness and understanding sin. The truth is, um, we, I, I think sin so clouds the judgment and the understanding that we really don't have a clear, a clear view, a biblical view of sin as we should. So like every other uh, doctrine of scripture, it is confused and distorted by the very fact, the very nature of it, its blinding effect on us. So we live in a, a very confused uh, age, morally speaking. Um, and since we do live in such a confused age, a confused time, morally, uh, for the good of lost sinners, I think, though it's going to be hard to do uh, this, though it's, it is, calls for great wisdom and care, it is time that we do reassert truths today about sin. Starts with our own understanding to make sure we understand sin well uh, for our own sake, uh, but also with regard to how we speak to others, how we speak to uh, whether it's our family members or friends or coworkers, uh, classmates, uh, wherever we talk to people, we need to I think retake the ground that we have lost regarding definitions, regarding the use of language. If you're following any of the culture wars, uh, what's going on today, especially when you see the LGBTQ plus plus plus, you know, alphabet soup movement, um, it is a war of words. The 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 battleground is really the the, the battle of language and language carrying ideas. I was just listening to a podcast this last week. Uh, I believe it was, yeah, it was mortification of, of spin. 
with Carl Truman talking to a, 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 a professor at Notre Dame. She's a Catholic, but she's gone back and done. She's done a she's done an amazing amount of research and study and acquired degrees in gender studies. And in the whole realm of gender studies, she's discovered that the term gender is, uh, is a postmodern term that's been created in order to shift our culture away from uh, the idea of maleness and femaleness to this vague idea of, you know, um, of gender that, that is uh, able to be morphed and moved and shaped and malleable to uh, the culture. So... We need to understand the, 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 the face of the battle that we are in uh, and realize that the, the, the battle really does um, involve language, definitions, because definitions and language and words, they are the, the carriers of ideas and concepts. And so it's really important that we don't use the world's language when it comes to issues of sin and righteousness we use biblical terms, and we insist upon those biblical terms with uh, people that we know. So we call abortion, just a few examples of this, we call abortion murder, and it is murder. And yet there are many, surprisingly, uh, most, uh, most surprisingly maybe in the pro-life movement, many today in the pro-life movement consider a mother to be a victim just a, a victim of abortion. They are unwilling to identify a mother as guilty of the sin of murder and refuse to hold her accountable. Instead, they'll talk about the social forces that forced her hand or uh, financial factors that forced her hand or psychological factors. They'll talk about the abortion industry, uh, even a boyfriend and toxic masculinity that pushed her into this. Uh, but the mother is a victim. Hard stop right there. We talk about alcoholism as if it's a disease, just merely a matter of physiology and therefore the subject of pathology. The Bible, though, identifies this as the sin, the common sin of drunkenness, and it calls for repentance. Um, we can expand this modern trend to the in, from drunkenness uh, called alcoholism. It's an ism. Uh, and we can expand this to the entire drug epidemic in our country. Those who are, uh, who are using drugs are not held responsible, especially if you look in examples in places like San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle. Uh, those who are caught in possession of Drugs like fentanyl and methamphetamine are no longer prosecuted for this, not even arrested. Instead, they're handed a pamphlet from the police officer with treatment options, uh, places that they can deal with uh, the physiology of their addiction. So addiction language, uh, um, ism language, syndrome, disorder, all those things are, are, are meant to shield the sinner from the reality of his own sin by redefining the issue uh, as something physiological. Uh, suicide uh, has sadly become epidemic and especially and most tragically for in, in my thinking to among those who are soldiers returning from two decades of war. Um, many are reluctant to identify the act of suicide as a sin though. 
the, the murder of an image bearer of God. Um, and we back off the, the, the severity of suicide itself and talk about the predictive behavior that leads to suicide and eventuates in suicide. And even those behaviors that lead to that are given psychological terms. They're called like syndromes and disorders rather than using biblical terms that identify sins like anger and self-centeredness and fear and anxiety, you know, the worry and things like that, that, that we can actually, um, we can actually draw, uh, draw in, you know, look into scripture and see what the Bible has to say about that and help people out. Homosexuality, we see obviously even among many professing Christians today is increasingly acceptable. And this is because of a shift in language. Uh, according to the uh, Pew Research Center, more than a third of evangelical Protestants believe homosexuality should be accepted. Um, you know, it's like 36% of, of evangelical Protestants. So we're not talking about liberals. We're not talking about Catholics, Orthodox. We're talking about evangelical Protestants that's considered the conservative voting block. They now believe homosexuality should be accepted. And it's interesting, the, the, the demographic spread of that as well. It's not just as you would expect, maybe in those who are 40 and younger. It's there's a there's a big chunk, 40 and under, uh, who've been enculturated that way in their school systems, uh, been discipled by the schools to think this way. Um, but it's also among those who are 65 and older. There's a big chunk there. Why would you, why do you think that would be that those who are really young and then those who are much older, why would the much older group be more and more accepting of homosexuality as not really a sin, but should be accepted at all? Well, that's the generation that came through the sixties that the spirit of free love hit the generation. So there's going to be a swath of them that agree with that still even to this day. Okay, good. So maybe maybe because of the, the generation, the free love, free sex, all that kind of stuff that uh, they grew up in in the, in the wild 60s and early 70s. Uh, Doug? Uh, media, without a doubt, is, has an agenda to normalize it, make it seem... Okay, so media has been... Well, even, even profitable. Media has been working them over for, for a number of generations. I mean, ever since the Archie Bunker figure is... The, the bastion of like conservative values and made to look like a fool and an idiot. Um, but that's and comical. Um, moving from there, that's what all sitcoms are doing is trying to make any any conservative morality look foolish. There are those that are trying to justify acceptance of kids or grandkids that have gotten into that. Yeah, I, I think that, that that right there puts the um, you know, puts the finger on on the real issue is that I think the pro LGBTQ plus plus all that stuff um, proponents have really won this uh, with regard to relationship. It's they, they make it such a matter of of this is your grandchild. This is your and, and why would you deny your grandchild love when this is the way they're created? This is the way they this is the way they've been born into the world. Why would you deny that? And so because that generation of 60 and up, they don't have a firm. They, they were told what to believe by their parents, but not why they believe it. They don't really understand the Bible. They've been in weak churches all their life hearing bad sermons and 
you know, moralism and stuff. And so when they have a grandchild that they love dearly and have watched from the womb grow up, all of a sudden take this course, it's really hard for their, they don't have any reasons for what they believe. So they just go with their sentiment, go with their feelings. And so then they advocate for their grandchildren who are committing this, these kinds of sins that are totally destructive. They don't really understand uh, what the issues are. So uh, anyway, I find that dem- demographic to be fascinating. But it, this is the, the, the fact that homosexuality, they think, should be accepted. And you have this whole side A, side B uh, Christians who some say um, the act of homosexuality is wrong, yes. But the feelings of homosexuality, no one can help that. So having a temptation to homosexuality, there's no sin really in that. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible calls it an inordinate desire. It calls it a dis- misaligned uh, desire, which all misaligned desires are sin. If I have a desire to take things that don't belong to me and make them mine, uh, I have a desire for stealing or thieving. We don't say that that's okay in the sight of God. You don't, you don't take any other sin and say the desire for that sin is somehow okay, just the committing of it. We don't draw lines like that, only in this, uh, in this conversation here. So the result of, I think, I think the acceptance, increasing acceptance of homosexuality is the result of a pervasive sexual immorality for many decades now uh, due to many churches that have been reluctant to practice church discipline on these issues. Uh, perhaps because many of their members are complicit in sexual sin. I was just talking, uh, Melinda and I had some friends come into town and, and uh, they, were, they came and visited us last night. We were talking to them and, and uh, um, her, her um, brother, her brother and his wife are going through a divorce. And after 20 years of marriage, four kids, they're going through a divorce right now, and it's and and they said they believe it's because oh, and the the church that they're going to, which they thought was a good church, they're not doing anything about her. They're taking her side of it, and she's pushing this. He is righteous. He's a good man, Christian, loves the Lord, and yet he's being um, portrayed as the uh, the perpetrator of everything here, and the church has taken her side, and they said, they just made the comment, we think it's because she's been having an affair with a pastor, the pastor of the church. So, of course, the church is not going to, when you're complicit in sin, you're not going to call out sin. And I think that many uh, professing these evangelical Protestants have been complicit in sexual sin for many decades, including uh, pornography, divorce, you know, divorce, divorce has been happening among professing Christians. So anyway, this is examples like this obviously show how our, they abound and they show how our society is just drowning in its sins, all the while denying the reality of actual sin. They don't, they're redefining terms and, but redefining terms doesn't do away with the actual sin and its effects. The, The sin is still there, no matter what you call it. The effects of it are undeniable. It's ravaging our culture. Um, it just confuses the issue by denying the reality of sin. So let me ask, why, why, is it, why do you think it's vital for, for human, just, just for our flourishing as humanity, for, our, uh, for the good of humankind? 
Why is it so vital for us to recover biblical definitions and use biblical language about matters of sin and righteousness? Why do we have to, why do we have to win the, the battle of terms, the battle of the dictionary, you could say? Because whoever controls the language controls the destination of the narrative. Okay. Whoever controls the language controls the destination of the narrative. That's exactly right. If you, it, it's like lawyers will say, whoever frames the argument wins the argument. We need to frame the argument. Yep. I would even go a step further and say, look, the eternal reality is based on what God has said. Like it's that simple. We we don't we don't get to heaven and use I don't know twenty forty one definitions of what a man is, right? Yeah. Good. Yeah. I I appreciate you casting that in eternal terms because that is the that is the uh, the stakes here. The stakes are eternal heaven or eternal hell and you don't get to use whatever definition of a man or a woman you want to or any definite don't you can't call a sin a syndrome or a disorder when you stand before the judge of all the earth yeah yeah um anybody else have a comment on that doug Martin, i mean it's pretty obvious but it is a gospel issue without sin there is no repentance and no Okay, so without sin, there's no repentance. Like, how do you repent of a physiological issue? How, how do you, and this is, this, is really the, this is really the issue. So how do you repent of a cold? If you get a cold, do you call you to repentance for that? No. What about a flu or COVID or whatever it is? When additionally, there's, there's no relief from it. Right. Right. Yeah, if you're an alcoholic, for instance, mm -hmm. you can't ever get better. Right. That's right. And with sin and repentance. So with a with a cold, I can take you know you know a cold flu. I can go to the the medicine counter at uh, the pharmacy, pull something off the counter, and hopefully recover from my cold or my flu. Um, COVID. I, I don't know whatever the treatments are, but you you take all that stuff. Um, what do you do for alcoholism? Is there, yeah, is, it's managing the disorder, managing the syndrome. And, and sometimes that comes with medications, and the medications have all kinds of side effects. Or um, with homosexuality, you just, oh, that's just the way I am. I can't yeah. change it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Ryan. I was just thinking, this is probably a strange illustration, but I'm thinking like Tower of Babel. So the, the language was unified, and look what they were they were able to accomplish. Yeah. And then with confusion, now everyone's able to, to do their own thing and, and you lose a lot of that knowledge. And so if you approach it from a righteous standpoint and everyone's unified in language and understanding, you're going to, you're going to have strong, healthy churches. You're going to, um, you're going to make you know, good progress towards righteousness. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But where there's confusion, Weak churches, rampant, everywhere. Good, good. So we need to get a hold of the language again and come to a unified language, and it's got to be God's language. There, there is no, uh, just like there is no repentance from a cold and, and recovery from a cold with repentance, so there is no recovery from alcoholism by by medical means or psychological means or anything else because alcohol uh, using and abusing alcohol is um, a sin using abusing drugs is a sin so if you identify it as a sin 
you can actually repent of that and there's hope. So we have to understand that recovering biblical language and fighting this, the battle for the dictionary and framing the argument is for the good of fallen sinners. It's for the good of the lost to help to recover them and bring them back into the folds of the truth so that they can uh, live and thrive and please the Lord and, and walk in righteousness, which is good for them. But if we, if we allow the world to set the definitions, um, we're leaving them in their despair. We're, and, and we're denying the truth about the gospel, that the gospel really can save. So if we redefine sin as a psychological pathology, it's like compare it to trying to shoot at a target while wearing shooting glasses that have been melted and they're distorted and you can't, so you can't see the target clearly and, and maybe add to that that your lenses are fogged up, spray painted black and covered in mud <laughs> and try to hit the target then. That's, that's really the issue here. So I, I just want to encourage you men that the battle is for the battle of ideas and the battle is for battle, the battle of words and definitions. And so you have to be thinking men you, you, can't, you can't check your brain and say, this whole religion thing, that's eh, beyond me. I'm a, I'm, you know, that's not my expertise. That's, oh, yes, it is. This, is. this is where you live as men. Danny. Uh, is it even worth then talking with someone when you have to start uh, describing words and definitions and things like that? Because for me, it always seems like that's where things get more heated so then I have the temptation to fall more into sin when I'm like this is what I said this is common sense you know this is <laughs> yeah. and it, is it best just to like fall like not the tactical retreat of like okay hey we'll talk whatever yeah, I, be, I would say for most people it's probably not wise to use uh, physical means but when you have your skills and background <laughs> If you have a kinetic response at your disposal, Danny, make use of that response. Hold them down. No, what do you, what do you, so you're just asking, is it wise? In that conversation, once you start, when it's like, yeah. they're like, this is what this means, and then you're like, no. Yeah. This is what this, you know what I mean? No, it's, it's, it's an excellent question. I think, um, I think that would be good for a, another, a discussion at another time. But here's, here's what I would recommend is, is when, you're, when you're sensing that there is a, which you're going to run into tension all the time with people who come from the world and the world of psychology. And what I like to do is rather than going toe to toe with them, I like to ask questions. And, so, and just, just ask questions that cause them to stop and think, oh, wait a minute, that's a good point. That's what I want to do with people who are steeped in that worldview. Uh, among Christians, though, this is, where, this is where I want to try to win the battle with fellow Christians, with my family members and with people in the church, so that we start using the language of the Bible rather than the language of the world. And I'll give you, let me just give you an example. And this is one, this is a question you can ask uh, people um, I, I think um, we should stop using contradictory language like mental health. Think about that term, mental health, how it combines an immaterial reality with a material reality and joins them together. Mental, what is mental health? Um, mental refers to the immaterial mind. Health refers to the material body. So the mind and the body are treated separately. They're treated separately biblically too. Um, 
So we need to go back to talking about sin that displeases God and sin being a matter of the mind and the matter of the immaterial self. Obviously, sin, practicing sin and being steeped in sin for many, you know, for a long time. David attests to this in Psalm 32 and Psalm 38 and other Psalms where he talks about the the effect of sin as its practice and you, you subdue uh, the, the sense of shame, you have guilt for your sin, you subdue your shame, and so it has, starts to have physiological effects. I'm dried up like in the fever heat of summer. Uh, my, you know, my bones are wasting away, I'm groaning. So he actually, and you know this, as, you've, as you know, your conscience has convicted you over sin. And you know as you've refused to repent of that, or refused to admit it or confess it to somebody or, or to God, how it starts to ache in your guts. You, you can feel physiological effects, but it's something you've done, and it's, it's, it's a spiritual issue. And it's amazing how when you come, just like David says, when you come to the Lord, confess your sin, how it relieves you. Physi- physiologically, you can feel that too. But sin is not primarily or first, fundamentally, a physical issue. So ask the question sometime when someone starts, I mean, mental health is big everywhere, right? It's definitely coming out of the military community, talk about coming back and got to treat, you know, address mental health issues, address mental health issues. I, 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 I love international rugby and I hear the rugby pundits all the time talking about, hey, got to guard mental health because, you know, these guys in rugby, they're giving themselves to this thing, but they, they get a little off in their mental health issues and then they go and you know, get drunk and beat up their girlfriend. And it's because of the mental health. It's, you know, because they, they just can't help themselves. They're, they're, they're not attending to their mental health. And I'm saying, no, they're sinning. They're getting drunk and they're, they're beating up their girlfriend. That's not righteous. Let's go after them for the sin, not mental health issues. Mental health issues are vague. Like it, it's, and it shifts all the time. So ask questions like that. Matters of sin and righteousness are not primarily about physiology, not about medicine. Sin and righteousness do affect the body for sure, but they're primarily matters of the spiritual, immaterial nature of man. So sin and righteousness call for the intervention of a soul physician known as a pastor uh, or uh, others who are trained in soul care like Christians, like church members, uh, armed with a spiritual manual called the Word of God, trained and experienced in using the Word of God uh, to identify issues and treat issues, um, and then empowered, all of that empowered by prayer. I'm going to stop for a minute and just ask, are there any comments or questions at this, at this stage? Yeah, John? To me, it seems like it's a matter of truth, because when you look at the Scripture, that's truth, and everything else is not true. And so what they are saying Basically, it's not true. And so you have to have a truth. You have to have a rock. Yeah. We got God's word. That everything is judged by that, whether it's true or whether it's not true. Yeah. You boil it down and it is that simple. It is, there's, there's true, there's truth and reality, and there's lies and unreality. And there's a, there's a confusion between, and, and most people, Listen, before we were saved, everybody lived in that area of that realm of unreality and lies and deception and 
you know, wearing warped shooting glasses that are spray painted black and dipped in mud. And we're trying to hit targets we can't see. We, we, cannot, we cannot deal with our issues with the, the lenses that we had on the world. And so it is a matter of going back to the word of God and understanding the truth. But in order to help people from here to there, telling them it's a matter of truth, while that's true, we need to build that bridge to help them over and to help them understand, okay, you're talking about alcoholism. Let's talk about that issue. You know, let's talk about what's going on with alcoholism and see what sins you're committing at the heart level that leads to you, des you desiring to drown your sorrows or your worries or your fears or social anxieties or whatever in alcohol. Uh, let's, let's talk about that. So sin and righteousness. Yeah, Joel. It, it appears to me that a lot of this is just a way to deny accountability and responsibility to God. Yeah. I, I went and I murdered 30 people at the mall, but I'm not responsible because I have mental health, whatever that yeah. means. And we see that time and time again every time we see a mass shooting. Oh, this person has mental health issues, so we, we can't actually, you know, hold them right. in the court of law. And even drunkenness and a lot of these other sins, it's just, just a way to pass the buck to say, well, I'm, I'm not responsible for that sin because I have whatever issues. Right. Yeah. So as you said, I, I, th I believe that's very accurate, that it is a way to duck accountability and, and, and act like, well, who, me? You know, I, I'm not a sinner. I didn't commit that sin. Uh, but what does ducking accountability get us? In the short term, we feel pretty good about ourselves, but give it a little time. And we're just heaping guilt upon guilt and we feel the shame of it and you try to suppress that it dulls the conscience which opens you up to more sin and more more guilt and more shame and you continue to duck accountability and and really find no you find no salvation you find no uh pathway to repentance yeah josh but in in our society in our culture you get you kind of get rewarded for doing it by now now suddenly you're you're also a victim. You get sympathy. There's a, a basketball player right now who got in trouble for like pulling a gun or something like that in Colorado. Mm -hmm. The next day, on the, they're like, "Oh, that idiot! He's costing me. You know, he's selfish." And then he came out. He has some mental health problems. And then the next, first of all, we're just we're just hope he gets the help that he needs. Yeah. And we're yeah. really praying for him. Our hopes and like, the conversation completely changed. So you can either be an idiot who's ruining you know your team's chances and or you can be a, a, a victim and need sympathy oh I'm, why wouldn't i take that way i can yeah. i can do stupid stuff and then people will we'll feel sorry for pray me. for me and give me money and say like <coughs> start a start a donation program you might do. it's good work if you can get it right yeah. <laughs> But in the long run, man, it's destructive. And, and if, that's, if that's the path that that, that man goes, um, man, that is not setting him up well for the future. Um, yeah, any other comments? Well, Good. One yeah. short one. I mean, it, it is truly sad to see this because I've seen this in my daughter's life and, and see what that same thing where people say, give her sympathy and stuff like that for mental health disorders and it is destroyed yeah <clears throat> yeah it's it is it is absolutely destructive it is destructive on the soul destructive on relationships destructive on on a career path it's it's destructive in so many ways 
And we're watching that happen in our society as, as people tribalize and fracture. There's no unity. There's no clarity on, on truth, language, sin, righteousness, none of it. And it's, you know, I, I think we're in the death throes of this civilization right now. I see a hand over here. So I, I don't know how many of you guys are aware, but the current generation of terminology is, is not even a, uh, abuse anymore. It's substance use disorder. Substance use disorder. Right. No, oh, I don't want to call it abuse, huh? Right, that's too stigmatizing or whatever. Uh. And so, yeah, I mean, we just see the evolution. You know, every you know, five or ten years, whatever, some new evolution. But one of the consequences, I think, for us is that every time they do that, it, it removes, it makes us sound ever more archaic and puritanical yeah. and like some kind of unicorn from a fairy tale. To say, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's enslavement. That's, that's an addiction. That's... This is what Isaiah identified as woe to those who call good evil and evil good. And that it's just flipping, it's flipping reality on its head, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, David. Thanks for the, <laughs> thankful for you to come out of uh, higher education and tell us what higher education is saying these days. And uh, yeah. So <laughs> I'm encouraging my son Scott to go get a degree of higher education and I keep questioning my wisdom in that you know what am I what am I doing <laughs> he's and he's rightly he's rightly asking me dad why am I why were you why are you encouraging this <laughs> I'm running out of answers uh, uh, well a good place to start with uh, you know taking back the ground on definitions is with chapter 6 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith and this is, this is coming from way back in 1689, right? This is hundreds of years old, archaic, unicorn-like. Uh, but the chapter title, chapter 6 in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, is, that's a nice, you know, catchy little title here, of the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof. Very useful chapter. And here's a summary statement at the beginning of that uh, section, section 1. Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor. Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit having purposed to order it to his own glory. And then there are some verses uh, I cited here. The London Baptist Confession begins with that summary statement, setting, establishing origins, establishing teleology, beginning and the end, uh, God's, how God created things and designed things and ordered things and how he purposed it for an end and also assigned the responsibility for sin, not to God, but to Adam and Eve, and showed the, the agency of the serpent uh, seducing Eve. Um, there's a worldview here. It just taught in that one simple paragraph. Clearly locates sin within the sovereign purpose of God. So there is a God, there is his will, there's his decree, there is his order of all things, and yet sin has a place within it. So sin was not an unanticipated intruder into God's perfect creation, nor was it a true disruptor of God's perfect will, though it is disruptive. 
But as the London Baptist Confession frames God's world and sin within it, sin has a role to play uh, in that in that world. For the sake of um, just your exposure and your blessing and benefit, I want to read you uh, uh, a little bit out of Wilhelmus Abrackel, um, Dutch contemporary of the London Baptists, the, the ones who wrote that confession in 1689. He was pastoring at this time uh, in the Netherlands. And here's, here's, a, here's a summary that he makes here. He says, God thus created Adam, and in him human nature in all its dimensions, as well as all men as created in him in such a glorious and immortal manner. He skillfully prepared his body for him and promised him eternal life. Where are they now who slander reformed doctrine by stating that we maintain God to have created one man unto the enjoyment of felicity and another unto damnation? We insist that God created all men in Adam for the enjoyment of felicity, and that man himself is to be blamed for his damnation. Here is reason to glorify and praise God for creating man with such excellent capabilities in body and soul. For he established man in such a state of holiness and glory to the honor of his maker for the purpose of exalting and praising him for all his works, as well as for the creation of man in the manner in which God had endowed him with faculties. Here we perceive the abominable nature of sin. Whereas man being endowed with such excellent faculties and being united to his creator with so many bonds of love has departed from him and despised and rejected him. He did so in order that the creator would not be master over him, but that he might be his own Lord and live according to his own will. Here is reason to approve of the justice of God. If he requites the sinner according to his ways and condemns him here, the incompre incomprehensible goodness and wisdom of God shines forth in that he reconciles such evil human beings, although not all of them, with himself again through the mediator, Jesus Christ. He caused this mediator to come forth from Adam as holy, having the same nature which had sinned, to bear the punishment of the sin of man's own nature and thus to fulfill all righteousness. Such human beings he again adopts as his children and takes to himself an eternal bliss. To him be given eternal praise and honor for this. Amen. I love that statement. I love his language there because it tells the story of, um, of, a, of a God who is immeasurably good and eternally good and kind and set us up for all goodness. And yet it places the blame of our fallen condition and how wrecked everything is, places it squarely on us. And, and he, call, he, he talks about us as evil human beings. When I use this kind of language of evil human beings with other people, it, it's so quick, I think, for people today to call us cultists, to call, you know, you talked about archaic, uh, to talk about uh, us in, in such, um, uh, such reprehensible terms with such disdain that we would dare use such language and call call human beings evil and talk about a, an innate sinful nature, talk about our, our children. Uh, though we love our children and we, babies are so cute and so wonderful to be with our children, but at the same time we recognize that in them is that sin nature that is evil and points them to evil and rebellion and hatred against God. And, and we, are, we are 
gun shy about using that kind of language, even among ourselves in the church. And I th- I'd say we need to recover that, not recover that in a, uh, you know, a caustic way or a strident way, but recover that kind of language and speak with biblical clarity. So before, I'm going to read some more sections of our confession, but does anyone have a comment on a reaction to what I've read so far? Yeah, Wayne. Just um, <clears throat> one of the things that I find very difficult in evangelism now um, is that our society, I think, has gone, you know, there, there used to be this phrase like the greatest trick the, the devil ever pulled was, you know, getting the world to think he didn't exist. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've gone even one step further than that to this place of almost like this hand wave of even doing any rational thought. Um, so, for example, you read from the London Baptist Convention, uh, Confession, uh, a contemporary, right, commenting on the same issues. The people that I deal with at work would pull a Jedi hand wave with that, mm-hmm. using, and, and they would say, well, you know, that was written by old white men. And it was written in a different time for different people with different norms, and I, I decide for myself. Um, and this entire, that entire circuit of logic has been short-circuited, thrown out, and whatever you're feeling in the moment, it t- it's almost like a substitute for any rational thought. Yeah. So, so it's difficult even to engage on something as fundamental as what is a man, what is a woman. Mm-hmm. People won't even have that discussion. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, you're you're right that it does seem that logic it it just it it's like there's a force field or a shield uh, that prevents logic from getting through. So it's like the bullets that you fire from your gun, logical, well ordered, good, reasonable, rational thought come at them, and it hits the shield, and then the bullets just fall to the floor. It's impenetrable. I think. Um, what we're seeing is the end of Romans one, uh, where we're talking about dealing with people with a debased mind that they, they don't, they're not able to think in sensical ways the, and, and it's to their harm. It's to their detriment, uh, and their degradation and destruction that they think in these ways. Uh, and you can watch them destroying their lives like a slow moving train wreck right in front of you. And it's tragic. It's just tragic, but they look at you Like you ever looked at a cow chewing its cud and it's just like looking at you and chewing and chewing and you could talk all you want to. Hey, you want some candy or you want an apple or, you know, but it's just like, duh and stupid. And that's how it is talking to many people of our wicked and evil generation. So what's to be done? I remember in reading some of Carl Truman's recent work, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self or Strange New World, uh, those books. And you just kind of throw up your hands and say, what's to be done? I think what's to be done is to trust the gospel and proclaim. Not, not to argue, to get into debate, and to try to reason. I mean, I'll reason through with anybody who wants to sit and reason through with me. Short of that, though, I just need to proclaim, you're a sinner in the hands of a holy God who's going to hold you to account And you're going to die and go to hell one day if you don't repent of your sin. God has provided 
and atonement for you in the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh, he's incarnate, and just go on with the gospel and call them to repentance and faith. Leave it there. And God, and we think that we're shooting out of the gun, it's hitting this force, this force field and just dropping down as if, as if any sinner has a force field that cannot be penetrated by the sharp sword of the word of God. So it may, it may look like it's having no effect, but we just need to trust the sovereign God to, to awaken those whom he has chosen and just continue to proclaim. Don't get discouraged in your proclamation. Don't become weary in well-doing. We'll reap if we faint not. Were you going to say something, Jeff? I was, I was thinking about the, uh, the culture of just even a few years ago where um, opinion mattered so much subjectivity has completely just overcome objective truth mm -hmm. and so basically what used to be very clear and uh, concise even two plus two is four now it's completely been overridden with no what does that what do you think two plus two is for you mm -hmm. um so now it's basically a judge's time now everybody mm -hmm. not only does right but they think right in their what is right in their own eyes yeah and their thinking is led along, led around by their feelings. So it's like they've got a hook in their nose, and their feelings just take just take them all over from pillar to post. Com completely like the, the James man being yeah. tossed to tossed to and fro. That's right. Double minded, triple minded, quadruple minded, right? So it's a it's a tough time we're living in. It is a Romans one time, but Paul wrote during a Romans one time, and he wrote to the Romans to preach the gospel. And that's what we need to do is just proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. And um, with gentleness and respect to people. Continuing with our confession in sections two to five, they describe the origin of sin. They explain original and inherited sin, describe total depravity, and they identify the abiding presence of sin in the believer. These are subjects that we're going to kind of unpack in this study of homardiology uh, as we move through this, uh, through this subject. It's just fascinating. So it says on the origin of sin in, in section two, our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. And we in them whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. That's known as total depravity, right? So it talks about the origin of sin and then the effect of sin. Talks, makes a distinction in section three between original and inherited sin. They being the root, talking about our first parents, and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of sin was imputed, that's original sin, and corrupted nature conveyed, that's inherited sin, right? Um, to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation, that's just procreation, having children, being now conceived in sin and by nature, children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. Talks about uh, total depravity in section four from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled and made opposite of all, to all good and wholly inclined to all evil do proceed all actual transgressions. So there's a, in total depravity, there's a total inability concept. And total depravity, we'll get to this, but it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can be. It just means we are, that, that sin and evil has totally pervaded our being. 
all of our, as it says here, all of our soul, our faculties, um, everything is pervaded by sin. Uh, the, the Bible, the Bible makes mention of, it doesn't use this term exactly, but it talks about the noetic effects of sin. The, the noe is a, a term that refers to the mind. And so it's the effect of sin on the thinking, on our reasoning. Our reasoning is even broken. It's, it doesn't work right. It needs to be guided, directed by the truth of God's word. So, so vital for us to understand depravity, inability, the effect of all this on our thinking, on our reasoning. And then abiding sin in section five, it says the corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated uh, to our sigh, to our sadness, right? Um, We all feel this, this abiding corruption of our nature. Um, It remains in those who are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. So though we are regenerate, though we have a new nature, we still have an abiding sin principle in us, right? Romans chapter seven speaks of this, this uh, abiding sin principle within us that, that deceives us and, and leads, us into, leads us back to old habits that we had left behind, um, old sins. So that's how our confession provides an introduction into the origin of sin. It talks about original inherited sin, total depravity, the abiding presence of sin. I think the confession is excellent in its concision and its comprehensiveness. It's therefore very useful as a guide, uh, a good, reliable guide for our doctrine of sin as we walk through this uh, together. So uh, time is getting the best of me once again. Um, uh, let, let me just let me just carry on. We'll see how far we get. All right. We're going to unpack the doctrine of sin and try to get further biblical clarity on a definition of sin, about its nature, learn about the effects on us. I I think we need to talk about, we'll do this in weeks to come, uh, talk about the pernicious and the persistent error of Pelagianism. I think it's important to kind of unpack Pelagian, Pelagian thinking because that there's always some version of Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism that uh, is at the root of every soteriological error, every homartological error. Uh, so it's very important to, uh, to talk about that error that cropped up in the early church and Augustine dealt with that so handily. But for, day, for today, we're going to start by getting a, a workable definition of sin. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide some start to provide some brief descriptions of sin from scripture, unpacking some biblical terms and word pictures. And I hope to get through some of that, a little bit of that today. We'll pick it up next time, whatever I'm not getting to. Uh, and there's plenty I'm not getting to. Um, and I, and I had, I had hoped to, I'm, I'm battling right now with this. Yeah, we may just have to wait. I would want to do a group uh, discussion time. But I think we're just going to have to put that off to next time. But uh, and the group discussion is actually probably going to take two sessions because there are 18 questions. I have your group leaders uh, ready to take you through in Genesis three. It's going to be a great discussion. You're going to love this discussion, but um, you're going to have to love it next time. (laughs) So. All right. So uh, for now. Let's start with a definition of sin. Can anybody think of a passage in the Bible um, that defines sin? And what I mean by that is like, where is there like a dictionary definition of style, uh, definition of sin? We're looking for those 
kind of those equative passages like sin is blank or blank is sin. Can anybody think of a passage like that? I've got some, but I had the, the uh, opportunity to cheat and use my Bible software. So <laughs> it's in first John. I can't remember. Sin is lawlessness. Yeah, good, good, good. Yeah. You're talking about first John three, four. Yeah. So, uh, and that's even without Bible software, just your, your brain. It's the Adam software. <laughs> the Adam software. I guess the noetic effects of sin hasn't affected you. So yeah, so that's, that's what my mind meant immediately to first John three, four. Um, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So sin is lawlessness. There's one definition of sin. It's lawlessness. Yeah. Gary. No one is right and not do it, and James is sin. Oh, good. Excellent. Excellent. So, um, James 4.17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Good. Excellent. There's another one. Yeah, Doug? Romans 3.23, all of sin falls short of the glory of God, so falling short of the glory of God. Okay, I didn't write that down, but that's a, that is a good one. Yeah, falling short of the glory of God. That's So, man, that's quite a standard. The, the infinite, perfect glory of God, anything that falls just not a mile short, but an inch short or a millimeter short of the glory of God is sin. That's pretty harsh, Doug. Pretty harsh. You Pharisee. Take one look at you. And you're a Pharisee. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember the verse, but Romans 14. Uh, yes, yes. Romans 14, 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because his, the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Wow. Whatever in your life does not proceed from faith, conviction um, about truth is sin. Oof. Starting to feel uncomfortable. <laughs> Yeah, Danny. Uh, Galatians five nineteen through uh, twenty one. Galatians five nineteen through twenty one. Yeah, it does. It's not. It's not using. It's not giving an equative uh, definition of sin, but certainly. Can you read? You got that pulled up? Yeah. Read that out because that's really useful. Now the works of the flesh are evident: sexual immorality, impurity. Sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so that's giving instances of the works of the flesh. And the all works coming from the flesh sin. So unpacking sin, certainly. That's a, man, that's a thorough passage, isn't it? I use that all the time in, in, uh, in, in context to try to help people see their sin uh, because it's so useful. Thank you. Anybody else on, on this? Uh, how about 1 John five seventeen? all wrongdoing is sin. Okay, so if it's not right doing, it's wrongdoing. If it's wrongdoing, it's sin. Couple verses in the Proverbs. Proverbs twenty one four. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. So pride. If you have pride in your heart, uh, anybody who here lacks pride? <laughs> Jeff lacks pride. 
which is pride. <laughs> All right. So it, that's, Jeff, that's sin. That's sin. It says right there, Proverbs 21.4. Haughty eyes, a proud heart is sin. I, all right. And you might add this one, Proverbs 24.9. The devising of folly is sin. Like that answer to my question, devising of folly. That too is sin. First uh, Samuel 15.23. For, for rebellion is as the sin of div- divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. So Rebellion, presumption, I mean, man, you know, look at your kids. Your kids who rebel against your authority, that's like the sin of witchcraft. That's divination. Yeah, Gary. I'm just thinking we're standing on stage too, but um, God forbid that I should sin by ceasing to pray for you. Ooh, in, in the position of a prophet, not praying for the people, and that's sin. Mm, man, it's, it's like you know, 500 pound bombs hitting our hearts right now, just with all these sins. So if we just, I, I'm just going to take the ones that I have here. First John three, four, five, 17, the two Proverbs passages First Samuel 15, 23, Romans 14, 23, and James four seventeen. These are just the ones I wrote down. You guys brought up some others, but if I just summarize what uh, I wrote down here from those texts, we can provide this definition of sin. Okay. Sin is lawlessness, all wrongdoing, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the devising of folly, rebellion and presumption, doubt, and whatever does not proceed of faith, and knowing but failing to do the right thing. That's sin. If we add what Danny just read us out of Galatians 5, 19 to 21, gets more expansive, that definition gets more expansive. So that's quite the mouthful. And we might ask this question, is that an adequate workable definition for sin? You know, what I just said. Sin is lawlessness, all wrongdoing, haughty eyes, proud heart, devising a folly, rebellion, presumption, doubt, whatever doesn't proceed from faith, knowing but failing to do the right thing. Is that definition suitable, sufficient, useful, something we can use to train our kids? Good? Yeah, and and when you think about that, I mean, Martin Luther comes to mind, right, when he did not have the right view of salvation. Can, can you imagine studying all that and feeling the weight of that every single day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and certainly when I started, um, when the Lord started drawing me, it was through a clarity about my sin. And and I, I had plenty of sins to see, but what he showed me most poignantly and piercingly was my pride. I could see the pride in, in me and it just, it it caused revulsion in my heart, yeah. Um, this, uh, the, the only fault I would find with that definition of sin is that it's cumbersome. It's hard to teach to the kids. Okay. So if we were to try to boil that definition down, um, how, how might we do that? Anybody, anybody know a shorter way to, and I just gave a hint there. The way I looked at it. What is the great commandment? What is the number one commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God of all heart and love thy neighbor's heart. So would that logic and conclusion be the greatest sin would be a violation of the greatest commandment? And when you look at all sin, it's basically a lack of love for God and others. I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. That's what Paul is saying there. 
Yeah. Their biggest problem was due, all their problems was due to a lack of sin. Either love for, and of course, a love for God and a love for others go together. You really can't have the one without the other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you make a, you make a very excellent point that anything that fails to love God or love others is, is definite, by definition, sinful. Okay, and, you look at it, the number one commandment. Mm-hmm, yeah. Most often repeated yeah, I take your point. in the New Testament, yeah. love one another. Yeah, Jesus called it the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, you know, to love your neighbor as yourself. So if you fail to love God or to love your neighbor as yourself, if you fail, if you fail to do that for one second, you're in sin, right? Okay, so... Why didn't God just give us that then in the Old Testament instead of giving us 10 commandments? Why did he give us 10 commandments or 300 and what is it? 60 something, 65, I don't know what it is. 365, one for each day, right? Uh, but, but unpack, so take the 10 commandments, boil it you know, boiled down to 10, but then you expand it out to 300 and some. Why, why did he give us all of that? Why he could have just said, Old Testament could be really, really short, right? Love God, love your neighbor. If you don't do this, it's sin. Let's move to the New Testament. Why did, why did he unpack it, John? Well, what did he say? He says, all the law and prophets basically right. came on this. Right. So basically everything else, all revelation is an expansion sure. of the great commandment. And what I'm asking is why did he do that? Why did he expand but it? We can understand what it really means uh-huh. to love yeah. God and to love our neighbor. Yeah, okay. So, so we've got to locate sin with regard to a violation of the law of God, right? Would you, would you agree? Is that, is that fair? You think? I'm not getting a whole lot of nods. You guys must be, want to avoid accountability here. <laughs> so the Baptist catechism that some of us have been doing has that question. Elijah's going to answer it. What is it? Uh, what, what, what is sin? Any transgression of the law of God. Any transgression of the law of God. I like that. I actually like the Westminster Shorter Catechism better. Anybody know that one? Question 14, what is sin? Anybody have that? I could Google it. (laughs) (laughs) And that would be fair, sure. Sin, Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So the transgression idea is good, and it's true. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But transgression makes you think of, here's the clear thing, and stepping over. The want of conformity or the lack of conformity to it, it presses that issue of a positive righteousness. So it's not just staying away from crossing over something. It's, it's actually that our, in our heart or life or mind, our imagination doesn't conform. I remember talking to a guy one time and he was really offended that God, um, he liked a God that was kind of like outside of his brain, outside of his mind. Uh, That was comfortable to him. But once he discovered God is omniscient and actually sees all your thoughts and holds you accountable for your thoughts, even your imaginations, even the desire, he was like, that's way too invasive. I'm not sure I like that. It makes you uncomfortable, right? Because because God does get quite invasive about our sin. Um, so West, I would argue for the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is sin? Uh, question 14, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. 
John Piper elaborated on that. He gave a fuller, more eloquent answer to the question, what is sin? He says, what is sin? The glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved, that is sin. I really like that elaboration. That really helps. But boiling it down to any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, that does encapsulate all the law of prophets hanging on those two commandments, love of God, love of neighbor. So, sin is any failure to conform to God's law or any transgression of God's law. And that definition is, I think, adequate, sufficient, usable, something we can use to train our kids. It's easy to memorize. It covers the ground. And it's, it's, it's uh, something you can elaborate on with your kids. But your kid, just like you just, just gave us that, uh, I, your, your dad hit play and you came out with it. Uh, that's so helpful. It's, it orients your thinking rightly and will serve you so well and serve your family well when you are teaching them. So that's fantastic. Um, can you give um, examples of the positive and negative examples of that definition? There's a command and a prohibition, right? Any want of conformity to, any transgression of. So just think of the Ten Commandments. What are what is a want of conformity unto and a transgression of? Yeah. Uh, honoring your parents. You know, I always use the definition that we've received from you guys right away, all the way with a happy heart. Yeah, yeah. When your kids do not do it in that way, they are breaking that command. They're not honoring, right? And and so they could obey on the outside. They could clean their room, stomping around, throwing stuff in the closet, folding going around. Mom and dad. For us, it looks more like my kid's bones turned to butter. I mean, he's just... Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah all of a sudden, he's like a, like a sack of goo. You know, he's falling on the floor, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing. They're only like 30 pounds, but it's like impossible to pick them up. You know, it's like... <laughs> it's like picking up a sack of jello, you know? 30 pounds of jello. So, but yeah, so that's, uh, you could see there that maybe they're obeying on the outside, but on the inside, they are not honoring. And there's an honor issue there. So there's a, there's a want of conformity to the law of God. What's a, what's a transgression of? Clear transgression. It gets the motive, see? Yeah. Because when the motive is out of a love for God, see, then it's right. True. And then, and then the person is going to be happy to do that. They Can some- do it because they want to do it. Can someone, out of a motive of love for God, sin against God? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> How would that be? Because <laughs> when we don't, then we, we put you... ourselves before. We put what we want before. And so we come very selfish with self-love. But what if it's not? What if it's like driven by love for God, zeal for God? Did, can you, can you, can you, can, with the right motive, can you commit sin? Yes. First Corinthians 4. First Corinthians 4. Yeah, the whole, uh, that, that whole church, you know, thought that they were doing yeah. good things, right? right? Mm. But they had divided out of, 
pride and arrogance and everything else into little tribal camps mm -hmm. warring with one another, yeah. losing love. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ, you know, all, yeah, see, I'm of Cephas, all thinking, I love God more than you, do, you know, like, but they're, 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 that of their zeal, and even Paul, in his zeal for righteousness, zeal for the law, thinking he's serving God by killing Christians. Hmm. So even out of motivated by love, and that's why it's so important to elaborate on what does love of God and love of neighbor look like. That's why 10 commandments are necessary. That's why 360 some commandments are necessary to unpack and elaborate on those 10 so that we understand that just because you say sincerely, I love God, you could be off base. You could be not, not hitting the mark. I think James and John, they wanted to call down fire and, and nuke the Samaritan village that didn't accept Jesus, right? And they did that out of what? Love for God. Zeal for God and his, and his holiness. Hey, do you not know that this is the Messiah passing through? How dare you? Let's nuke them. And just give the word, Jesus. We're going to call down fire like Elijah. And he, he rebuked them, right? So they, were, they, they had the right motive of love for God, but they didn't, they didn't have God's will in mind, and they didn't have the teacher's compassion in mind. So our love can be uh, misguided and off target. A lack of ignorance? I'd say it's due to ignorance. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a, a lack of understanding, yeah, yeah. And that goes back to the noetic effects of sin, it goes back to our limitations, it goes back to our just need for God's truth. Um, all right, so, <laughs> uh, how did, um, here's another question just on that, sin is any failure to conform to God's law, any transgression of God's law. How did Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount help us to understand the full intent of God's law? Think Sermon on the Mount, particularly Matthew chapter 5. How did Jesus help us to understand the fullness of what it means to not conform? And you could say chapter 6 too. Not conform to God's law and also transgress. Uh, let's, just, let's go here, John. Um, this with adultery, thinking that it was, it's not just committing adultery, it's actually in your heart, even looking. Okay, good. So he internalized the matters of sin and righteousness. He took it down into the thought life. Yeah, great. Is that what you're going to say? Okay, great minds, right? Great minds think alike. So Jesus showed us how any failure to conform or any transgression of God's law is first and foremost a matter of the heart, of the mind, of the will, of the imagination. So if we unpack this concept of sin most fully and we recite that Really good definition. Teach it to our kids. Sin is any failure to conform to God's law or any transgression of God's law. We need to help them to apply that definition to actions, to words, to thoughts as well. We need to apply that for our own self, for our own soul, but also teach it to our kids. So if we expand that definition just slightly... For the purpose of instruction, we'd say sin is any failure to conform to God's law, any transgression of God's law, whether in thought, word, or deed. Thought, word, or deed. I think that covers the ground. So through our deeds, our words, our thoughts, sin finds so many channels of expression. And sanctification is all about winning back those channels and using them for righteousness. Uh, perhaps some of you older, more mature Christians have had this experience over the course of your Christian life. 
When you first came to Christ, you struggled to put off behavioral sins, to stop committing sinful actions and start doing righteous actions. So you're some obvious things. Um, once the fog started to clear on actions, you noticed how easy it was to sin with your mouth, with your speech. And you're like, ooh, that, that came out pretty sharp. That was, that was not a good word that I spoke. James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, right? Able to bridle the whole body as well. So at that point, when we discovered that little gem, uh, we, we figured, man, we're light years away from, from sanctification. But we engaged that battle. We took up the battle to, to tame the tongue, to deal with the tongue issues, the speech issues. And God started giving us victory over the sinful use of our tongue and to use it for righteousness. And we understood in Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Corrupting just isn't about using foul words or bad language. It's, it's, it's really, the, the word has to do with corrosion, something that erodes or corrodes, something that disintegrates. Uh, so think about battery acid. Is your tongue like battery acid spewing all over people? So let no corrupting battery acid come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So we learned that I need to keep my mouth shut more. <laughs> and so that when I speak, I'm thoughtful about what I'm speaking so that I'm targeting my words to the upbuilding of other people around me. So after we learn to shut our mouths and speak less, and we're able to listen more, all of a sudden now, we're thinking about our thought life, right? We're thinking about what's informing our tongues and what starts to come out of our mouths. And so we're forced now to, 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 to realize how much is going on inside our heads, inside our hearts, that grieves us too. We see lustful, prideful, petty thoughts popping up at the most inappropriate times like popcorn or a popcorn popper, just boom, boom, boom. And we're like, what is going on in my head? What's going on in my heart? And we start to recognize in ourselves what Calvin talks about, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols, just pumping out idols, things we're chasing in our minds and our hearts. Man's mind, Calvin says, full of it as it is of pride, and boldness dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. And as it, as it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance. It conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. Idolatry, pride, self-centeredness, all of these are the opposite of love, love for God, love for our neighbor. But it's pride, it's idolatry. And this is the essence of sin. This is what we see happening in Genesis chapter 3. So, I'm looking at the time. I'm not even going to try to start into a description of sin, but you're really going to like this part in the description of sin. We'll get to it next time, start, start into this. And we'll also get into uh, the origin of sin going back to Genesis 3. And as I said, we're going to have four groups set up uh, for you guys to get into and start working through some questions in understanding the origin of sin, what's going on in Genesis chapter 3. Why do I think it's so important? This is a question for you. Tell me what's in my head. I love this kind of question. <laughs> Why do I think it's so important that we have to go back to Genesis 3 and really get a, get a handle on what's going on in Genesis 3? Why is that so important in this study of homardiology? Yeah, Bill. 
the game plan hasn't changed. What was true then is exactly true now, and specifically in Genesis 3-1, where the Lord says, where Satan tempts, where Satan is tempting him with, did God really say? If he, if he progressed in that thought even more and effectively did, he, he was actually saying, not only did God really say, but did what God really say wasn't really good. So, so if we don't understand the goodness of God and what's happening in the heart, we're going to always choose to please man and not choose instead to please God and righteousness. Okay. And so, and so you see Genesis 3 as important in helping with us understand that issue? Mildly. <laughs> Mildly important. So it's, it's a good, there's a lot of passages, but that's a good one. But yeah, so that, that whole issue of understanding sin as a rebellion against the goodness of God, the fact that, if we could say it this way, that is a pattern for every single sin, okay? Paradigmatic is the term. It's a paradigm. Scotty. Uh, it's the starting point. So it's the, that is the first known time that man was actually good. Right. And so it's the transition, just the, the stark transition from good to bad is like you have to go there because that's where you find like, well, how did we actually get there to sin? Like to where man, now, now all of a sudden all men are sinful. Okay. So you got to go back to the origin or you just called it the starting point. Go back to the very beginning and see what happened then. When, when mankind, Adam and Eve, at the high watermark of intellect, understanding, energy, capacity, ability, in, in pristine innocence, goodness, righteousness, how did they fall? How in the world could they depart from that? It's so vital that we go back to the very beginning and look at the origin of it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, And to right. kind of the springboard on, on Bill and Scott, that's a good place to start if we're gonna discuss this because currently we've redefined all the words and definitions. Okay, all right. So if we're going to try to win the battle for the dictionary and frame the argument and understand terms, we really should go back to where it all began. All, all began right there in Genesis chapter 3 and get, get a good, clear understanding of the, of the very start, the origin of sin, how this all happened, where the fall took place. Nicholas. Well, then just also whatever Adam and Eve did is what's being passed on to us. So if we understand what happened to them. Okay. Yeah. Whatever Adam and Eve did, that's, that's happening with us. Listen, every single sin, every single sin we commit is after that same pattern. That is a paradigm for every single sin. If we understand that, 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 that start of sin, the origin of sin well, we're going to be able to identify it in our own lives, our own hearts. Brett. Uh, I was just going to say Satan hasn't changed his tactics. Yeah. So, uh, when we understand this, we're going to understand that the, the sin is appealing to our sinful desires, and we have to just understand Satan's tactics to keep us from going down that road. Good. Satan has not changed his tactics. He came up with a really good one at the very beginning, and very, very smart uh, little serpent there. Uh, but he came up with a really, a really good and effective strategy, and so he knows it works. If it worked on the high water mark of humanity, anything less than the high water mark, you know, like us, <laughs> he just needs to repackage that same lie, that same deception, and just keep passing it off. And we're going to fall for it. And do we not fall for it every time? Except in Christ, by regeneration, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the truth of God's word, we're armed. You know, Ephesians chapter six, we have the full armor of God and we can walk in truth and righteousness and holiness and not fall. 
we can. So with that, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, the study we've had this morning. We thank you that we can walk in righteousness before you because you've given us uh, the panoply of God, the full armor. We, you've given us access to the armor, uh, ar- the, uh, the armory, so we can walk in and take off the shelf every weapon of righteousness and arm ourselves with it. And we just ask that you would uh, help us through the study of sin, uh, that you would give us discernment and clarity, and you would help us to be bold as men, to be warriors for the truth and, and go out and win the battle for definitions and terminology, uh, that we would really argue for your world, your rules, your righteousness, and that your justice would prevail. Please give us encouragement in this battle. Go before us and prepare the ground uh, by the Holy Spirit, uh, by your preparation, and then let us walk in in ground that you've already prepared. Um, Please start in our own hearts and help us to conform increasingly by the power of the Spirit, by the effectiveness of your word. Uh, Help us to conform to the righteous pattern that we see in Jesus Christ. It's uh, for your glory, Father, that we pray these things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and acknowledging the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.